0: Hi and welcome to our third episode of season two of Heroes in Our Midst. I'm Michelle Sawatsky and thanks for joining us on our quest to share stories of those who walk among us doing extraordinary things because of the incredible humans that they are. We thought it would be especially fitting to share today's story with you in that our Manitoba medical system is being stretched beyond its limits right now. Most of us have no idea what it looks like on the inside of all of that. We thank our frontline medical workers, and we know that it must be hard. We hear stories, but we really have no idea what to believe. So instead of listening to others telling their stories, we thought we would just talk to one of our incredible Manitoba doctors himself, Dr. Faisal Siddiqui. Faisal was part of Dr. Kalbaterol's first high-performance physician curriculum, and, and you will hear the impact of that as he shares his story. Now, presently, Faisal is an assistant professor at the University of Manitoba in the departments of anesthesia and medicine in the section of critical care. He is also the medical director for the surgical ICU at Winnipeg's Health Sciences Centre. So if anyone has seen the effect COVID has had on our medical system, it's him. And I couldn't be more grateful that he was willing to sit down with me, albeit via Zoom, and show us all the human side of those who truly are our present day heroes. Of course, the best way to get to know anyone is to hear their story. And that's where I started my conversation with him.
1: So uh, I'm a Manitoban born and raised. Uh, My dad was a physician who trained in India, worked in England and then came here before I was born after he got married. Uh, I was born in Brandon, lived there for first few years of my life, came to Winnipeg when I was a little older for school. And then, you know, that development really all happened in Winnipeg, uh, you know, learned how to skate, played a lot of hockey, hung out with people, did what Winnipegers do. Sure. Uh, and then when it came to university time, I kind of expected to stay in Winnipeg and I wasn't sure what I was going to study. Uh, my dad was a doctor. You know, everyone wants to be like their dad. You're going to be a cobbler. You're going to be a, you know, you do what your dad does kind of thing. So I, I thought maybe medicine was where I would go. And my father said to me, he's like, you know, uh, you can't stay at home. You should go away to school because that's how you grow as a human being. He had done that when he was younger. He said, it's the best way to learn how who you are and how mm-hmm. you will deal with the world. So I, uh, moved away to Montreal when I was 17 and went to did a bachelor of science at McGill for four years. And, uh, it was the best of times it was the worst of times like <laughs> you know it's, it's great to be in Montreal when you're 17 and stupid uh, but holy smokes do you learn how to grow up really fast and uh, really what it taught me uh, at that time was that, that like part of what I liked in life was I like the idea of helping people and you know I did a lot of volunteering in undergrad. Uh, I was on the executive for a couple of different uh, student body things because I just like the idea of like being able to change what I didn't like but also helping in the areas that I could. Uh, Unfortunately at the just before I started fourth year of undergrad my dad passed away kind of precipitously and that threw our life uh, just uh, into shambles. We you know my dad was a single breadwinner in the family. I had two sisters. My mom and my sisters were in Winnipeg. My younger sister was quite a bit younger than I am. Uh, my older sister was a little bit older than I am, but she you know, was still living at home. And we had gotten to the point where um, it's like, I have to finish my degree, but then I better get a damn job because someone's got to make money and pay for bills. And my dad was, you know, he'd saved up enough money, but it wasn't, my mom was in her forties when, uh, he died so it wasn't like I was, didn't want to spend my mom's money like she still mm-hmm. had 30 40 50 years of life and so I didn't want to be that guy so um, in the end uh, that fourth year was really tough it was hard to pay bills I didn't know where I was going to eat where I was going to sleep for the night kind of thing yeah. but at the same time you know I, I found a lot of hope because it was for three years I had been learning who I was as a human being mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden I was now like now you're not just a human being you're an adult and yeah. you better start planning ahead and so thankfully I'd done well enough in school that you know I applied to medicine I remember applying to a bunch of different places and getting a whole bunch of rejection letters but then fortunately got an acceptance letter and I was like okay now I know that life will be okay it sounds horrible but, um, it's not that I knew that I was life was going to be good it's just that I knew I would have a job and I knew that, like, those concerns that I'd had about, will my mom still have money? Will she be able to eat, sleep, have a place to go? You know, my little sister, my older sister, make sure that they were safe and comfortable. So that those feelings of responsibility towards my family, which, being the son of an immigrant, it was definitely something that we felt. family was very important to us and still is. Mm-hmm. So it was nice to have that settled out. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't understand at the time, that really, it was the first step in a very long road before you're comfortable in making an income. So the first four years of, of medical school training, you don't get paid. In fact, you pay tuition and things like that. And tuition is kind of steep. So luckily, banks recognize how stupid students are, and they lend you money. <laughs> so that lent money helped pay for my bills, but also helped support a house. And I so I moved back home. My mom and my sisters were at home we were all in the same house again which was felt kind of nice again but pretty much we were all like scrambling to make sure that we had enough money to pay the bills when i finished my medical school training there then you have to pick what specialty you're going to do and Mm for four years i thought i'm going to be a psychiatrist like my dad i loved it i thought it was great i really was intrigued by the medicine behind it i loved how you could help people unfortunately i did a about three months straight of psychiatry as a medical student and realized at the end that like I didn't like who I was when I came home at the oh. end of the day and the reason why was because I felt horrible that I couldn't help the people right in front of me at the moment mm-hmm. because the the issues that brought them to the hospital or brought them to medical care sometimes were issues that it's not um uh, there's no pill there's no treatment there's no right. Uh, discussion. It, it, there's no um, instant fix. It's all slow, methodical, like, oh, you're, you're having trouble paying your bills. I remember what that feeling was like. <laughs> but you also don't have a job. I know what that feeling's like. But you, you don't have the skill set to get a job. And now, and now you have social complications on top of health complications on top of everything. And I, I felt like I wasn't able to actually cause any benefit to those patients other than be a shoulder to cry on. And what would happen is I would come home upset.
0: Yeah.
1: So I took it home with me and I realized I don't want to do this when I grow up. And that is very hard because medical school is, um, although it's competitive to get in, once you get in, it's still a competition for what do you do next. And you have a whole bunch of people who are really high achieving, who all of a sudden now have to compete at a different level for different things. So I was um, debating about what kind of career I wanna have and talking to friends and family. And uh, you know, uh, I, we, we have no one else in our family as a physician, but my dad had some friends who were physicians and I talked to them uh, and they all said the same thing. They're like, this is a tough job. Mm -hmm. And you will have days when you will hate your job and that's okay. The problem, the thing you have to find is something that you can tolerate the bad days because the good days are that much better. And so I took that to heart in the sense that like, I'm not looking for happiness every day. I don't think that I can be again, I was taught to work hard, taught to put in effort I couldn't be the kind of person who searched for happiness. And if I didn't find joy today, I was give up what I'm doing and go on to the next thing. Right. I I, I was a little bit more um, longitudinal in terms of how I thought about that stuff. So what I did was uh, I looked at options that were kind of reasonable, kind of in between um, psychiatry, but also where I could help people in that landed into this realm of like pain control and chronic pain. And that's where anesthesiologists and psychiatrists work together. And I thought, oh, this is great. I'll try something like anesthesia for a bit and see. And then I did a little bit of anesthesia in the last few years of my uh, medical school. And I realized it's not uh, the psychiatry part of things. It's the instant gratification of here's a problem I give this treatment, medication, intervention. Here's the solution. People get better. Hmm. And I was like, this is what I want. I I loved the mental challenge of the knowledge and skill. And I, I gained the satisfaction of my job where I'm like, I may not make everything go well, but I can make a decision that will help this one person right now. So That led me down a little bit of a path where I was, like, doing training in anesthesia, and again, I had been back in Winnipeg for about four years and realized I uh, love my family, I love Winnipeg, and I love the people around here, but I wanted to not be in Winnipeg, back kind of under the, without living with my mom, you know, like, in that kind of age of life. So I ended up uh, applying for training in anesthesia across the country, ended up uh, landing and back in Montreal again. And I spent five years there training in anesthesia. And during that time, I realized that anesthesia is very boring. And so getting back to what, you know, my family friends had said is like, you have to tolerate the boring for the exciting stuff. And I realized that the exciting stuff that I really enjoyed that I thought I could help with is the people who were incredibly sick so those are the people on life support who are in the intensive care unit anesthesia takes care of those people uh, to a certain extent but that's a different specialty training so after my five years of training in anesthesia i sought out some more training in um, intensive care Uh, along the way during residency uh, or actually during medical school i met my wife we got married during residency had a few kids in montreal and both my wife and I had lots of conversations about how do we, where do we go for training next? She enjoyed Montreal, but her family was all in Winnipeg and she wanted to come back. And I realized that if I wanted to stay married, I'd probably have to get closer to home where grandparents can help take care of kids. And my wife had supports and, cause I was going to do two more years of training and that get me, got me to critical care. Um, and thankfully I was accepted into the training program here and not trying to cut a long story short, but just to fast forward to like kind of the big change is that intensive care taught me that life ends for all of us. Mm -hmm. And there's a time and a place for it. And sometimes there's things we can do to help uh, people get over a small speed bump that might lead them onto a little bit of uh, the need for a little bit of extra help for a bit. But sometimes it's an irreversible disease uh you know life it it does end at all times and I was having trouble managing people who I thought should survive but didn't right and I was also having trouble with people who I thought oh, I'm pretty sure I know this is gonna be a terminal uh illness or injury for this patient and they got better Hmm. and I was like what am I doing wrong like I'm I've done all this training and I can't help the people that I think I can help. Don't get better. The people that I think are not are beyond help walk out of the hospital. So what, what am I doing? Am I really <laughs> that important in this all? And actually that's where one of my mentors who was doing some work with Cal, uh, he actually was doing a research study with Cal and said, you should try this. It's training on how to be, Uh, in the moment and how to improve your performance in high stress situations. And I was like, sure, like I'll, I'll try it. (laughs) And it changed my perspective. It didn't make me a better doctor. Mm -hmm. It made me a better human. And it made me recognize that the difference between what I had thought was important, like prolonging people's lives, Mm -hmm. making sure that they got as many days as possible. That wasn't what I had control over. And instead, what I had control over was, how do I, what medication do I choose now? Is this the right choice for this patient? Have I considered all the options? If if I'm doing a procedure, am I doing the procedure effectively, appropriately in the right instance? Am I making the right choices along the way? Because if I focus on the steps that I can control, then the outcome will happen, whether I like it or not. And I could divorce myself a little bit from the responsibility of that, but I am incredibly responsible for the steps that I choose mm-hmm. and hopefully that helps more people. And so that change in perspective allowed me to focus on the more important things when I was talking to patients and families, I stopped being worried about, are they going to live or die? Because we're all going to die. Right. But I started talking to families and say, we are going to do our best. We are going to offer you everything we have, but I don't know where this is going to go. And that, um, ownership of not knowing and being horribly like brutally honest with patients about, I don't know if I can help you, but this is what I know I can do. It's um, helped me manage patients. And I've also had patients say to me stuff like, I appreciate that you don't lie. And Mm. I I, like, I feel horrible when I hear that because it means, do you think that we're all lying to you? (laughs) (laughs) But at the same time, it made me recognize that like, this is the gift that I can provide people. Yeah. This is this is the, it's it's not actually the 15 years of university and 15 years of clinical practice and that acumen that I've developed. It's the, I'm winning here with you. We are going to do our best. There is nothing that we're going to be able to fix 100%, but we'll get as damn close as we can.
0: Yeah, It it seems to me what I love about the human side of all of us is that you walked your journey through medicine, but that was your sport. You were training for it. You were competing for positions in it. And, um, you know, I, and I thank you for sharing the human side, because I think we assume that people who choose the jobs that you chose in the end, you chose intensive care, critical care. I mean, you know what stage you're already getting these patients in and maybe speak to that, how the general public, I think we just assume, well, if you choose that job, you just must naturally be tougher or be able to handle that. And what are some of the things that you use? Do you have some tools that you use every day when you sort of head into that environment of yours?
1: For sure. So I think a couple of things to point out. One is Cal's perspective he brought to me or the perspective change that I had helped me understand when I was stressed, why I was stressed and how to manage it, which made me better at work. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, the discussion that he had with multiple members of the medical community, this psychology of high performance Mm -hmm. athletes to high risk uh, medical stuff. When I walk around the hospital, I know the people who've done the course and who've hung out with Cal. And if I'm having a bad day, I can go talk to them, and they can come talk to me. And literally, we'll be like, how are you doing today? Everything okay? Just want to just check in. So it's been a culture change in the hospital environment that I work in that has made us uh, better at what we do and provide better care. The things that I can say that I incorporate into what Cal taught me, like just in, in terms of the perspective that I've gained one of the analogies that Cal used was he was talking about downhill skiers and how they plot the course and they go through in their mind. And when I get to this gate, I turn this much. And if I turn too late, I'm going to be slower. If I turn too fast, I'm going to clip the gate. And so he talked about how, you know, if you start off at the top of the hill saying I have to get there in a minute and two seconds, cause that'll be the world record. That is too lofty a goal. It's not actionable if you don't get there in a minute, two seconds. Unlike I need to change my angle from 45 to 35 when I hit that turn. Yeah. And so I was like, that's totally it. Like the goal of medicine is always like save lives or people think that that's the goal of medicine. Right. right? But really, if I go into work saying I'm going to save someone's life today, or I'm going to save everyone's life, people are going to die. I'm going to be a failure every day. But instead, if I say, I have to do this procedure right now. I need to make sure every step is meticulously done perfectly. And then if it is successful, it's because I did everything right. Not because I'm good or bad, but it's because I did everything right. If it isn't successful, did I do everything right? I can go back and I can actually adjust my treatment so that the next time I try it, it's more successful. Mm -hmm. So that perspective is something that I teach trainees now because And and trainees, senior colleagues, junior colleagues, everybody. I'm like, you know, when people come and say something bad happened, I feel horrible, blah, blah, blah. You know, they want to share a story. I just tell them, I'm like, let's, let's walk through your steps and say, did you do everything right? Mm -hmm. Because you must relinquish responsibility for things that you cannot control. People come in with diseases that cause people to die. That's our bodies are built for a finite time. Mm -hmm. So if we don't, do the right thing we can definitely <laughs> expedite that <laughs> but if we did everything right and a bad outcome still happens we have to be willing to relinquish that responsibility again and say I tried my best I'm going to go home and I'm going to feel horrible today but it's not because I'm a horrible person it's because something horrible happened to another human being and we can separate ourselves from that discussion so I use that uh, a lot the other like it's a stupidest thing uh, Cal talked about and one thing he taught me was, um, he's like, think about a day that was exciting for you. And I was like, you know, my wedding day was exciting for me. He's like, did you sleep the night before? I was like, no, I was excited, right? I, I probably barely slept. Yeah. And he's like, and how were you during the day? Were you cranky and angry and irritated and whatever? I was like, no, I was excited. He's like, so when you have a bad night at work and the next morning you're like, oh, I feel horrible. And you prime yourself to feel horrible. So why don't you just say, before you go to bed, like you walk through your day saying, Hey, it's three in the morning. I'm going to get two hours of sleep. When I wake up, I'm going to feel great. I'm going to get all this stuff done. And I know I'm going to take this time in the future to take a break. And so just kind of walking myself through the day. And so I thought, that's crazy. Like I do that all the time where, you know, you're hanging out with friends, you're traveling and you haven't slept for 48 hours and you still are ready to go. But then, you know, someone phones you in the middle of the night and you you get disrupted sleep for four hours and you're a bear the next day like you can't let that affect you or you shouldn't let that affect you right Mm. especially when people kind of look up to you in terms of leadership you don't want to go talk to a family about something happening with their loved one when you're not feeling on your game Mm -hmm. so I incorporate that into my life like and I push it on my kids like you know my kids are like oh they stay up late working Uh, on some project I'm like when you go to bed tonight you tell yourself you're going to be fine in the morning you don't wake up cranky you know like getting out on the right side of the bed I'm like you can do that.
0: In your 15 years, you said of all your training, which in itself blows some of our minds, (laughs) by the way, I I think just in the medical field and some of the some of the things that you chose to pour yourself into is very impressive, by the way. But in those 15 years of training, you didn't know Cal for all of that, right? That came later on for you. Can you take us there to a time where, you know, did it ever get almost too hard for you to think I'm going to do this medical thing? And, and maybe in comparison to how wonderful, it is to have these tools
1: so I'm gonna share a story that makes me cry every time I talk um, so when I was in the middle of my training uh, I was working in the intensive care unit learning how to do that and uh, I had to take care of a young man who he was in his 50s he had just had a heart surgery had come out into the intensive care unit and he was sick but was starting to get better Uh, We had uh, kind of reduced how much support we were giving him. We had taken the tube out of his lungs. So he was breathing on his own and he was holding his own for a bit, but then the next day he didn't look right. He looked like he needed more help. So we, uh, I, uh, we had to put him back on a ventilator. So uh, I was part of a team. There was an attending physician. There was a, who had been doing critical care for a while. He was a mentor of mine. There's a couple of other residents there and there was I was the one from anesthesias. anesthesia all just tend to put it people on ventilators a lot so they said oh Faisal could you do it and I said yeah I, I think I can um, in the situation I like looking back I'm going to say that I overestimated my skill or I underestimated the difficulty uh, but while we were trying to put this tube back into his lungs he had a cardiac arrest and needed CPR. And it was uh, a mess. And I, like, I remember, I still remember to this day, this is, this is 2002. Wow. I still remember to this day, um, the steps that, that I took, who I called, when I called. And after it had all was all said and done, the man unfortunately passed away a couple of days later. Possibly because of what I had done, possibly because of what was happening to his body. After we finally got him stabilized initially, after getting the tube in, after calling for help and having a lot of difficulty, I walked out of the hospital wearing my lab coat and a stethoscope around my neck, and I wandered the streets of downtown Montreal for about four hours. And I (laughs) couldn't go to work. I... Was getting phone calls people were like where are you and i was like i just need a minute i just need a minute my wife uh was actually uh back in winnipeg at the time she was visiting her family and i was while i was at work and i remember calling her and just bawling my eyes out uh, and then the two days later when i had to talk to the kids of that man and share like, that he's gonna pass away, there's nothing more we can offer. It was difficult because I had kids and I knew that the things that we do help people, but I also knew that they can hurt. So what ended up happening uh, after that was that I had multiple conversations with lots of different people that I work with in anesthesia. And they all said the same thing, they're like, did you do the right thing? Would you have done anything different? And I said, well, I think I did the right thing. I even talked to my senior colleagues and I said, hey, before I started down this path, and they all said the same thing. They're like, I don't think there's anything you could do differently. But as you can tell, I still carry this with me. Mm -hmm. When uh, at that time, there was a lot of, you know, there was, I had two groups of people in my life at the time. There was the colleagues at work who said I can't believe you let that happen Mm -hmm. and then there was the other colleagues at work who said you did your best we still trust that you're a good person and you try
0: yeah
1: and you have more to learn and I was like I appreciated both those groups of people because the group that told me they can't believe that I did that that was how I felt about myself and the group that was telling me that I still like had more to learn I completely agreed with and so not to belabor the point but like I find that situations like that have arisen since then it has been almost 18 years and I still think about this family and I still think about the conversation I had with those kids because that's the part that hurts um, it wasn't the medical act it was the fact that there's a family there who doesn't have a dad because it's something that maybe I was responsible for. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, yeah, like I said, when I when brought back or when we had this discussion at the, with Cal through the course, I was just like, this is exactly what I went through uh, like five years ago. I <laughs> yeah. wish someone told me about this because <laughs> it does change your perspective. And, uh, but now I get to have this conversation with other people. Right. When bad stuff happens, if I'm around, I'll be like, you look like you're having a bad day. Let's go talk about this. And I make sure that I follow up with people. And again, it gets back to that culture in the hospital. that's changed because of the discussion that we've had with lots of different specialists. We're like, everyone knows, okay, you had a bad time. These are the people that people talk to. They're going to support you. They're not going to tell you you're great. They're not going to pat you on the back, but they're going to tell you that it's happened to all of us. And, uh, So I I don't know, that's probably the best example of a time before I had the experience with Cal to kind of put it into words, it was just uh, a very visceral sensation.
0: Wow. You know, when I hear that, maybe the hardest part is not knowing. Was it something I did or something I didn't do? And the fact of the matter is, when I listened to that, you never would have been in that situation to experience that pain if you hadn't put yourself in a situation where most of us aren't brave enough to go in the first place, to take the risk. And what was it though, Faisal, that, um, I mean, that could have been a moment for you where you said, no way not doing this anymore i am not going to wait for the moments where i help families and then live through the moments where i have to uh see families hurt what was it inside of you uh you as a human you know what kept you going
1: so uh it's interesting like i i had trouble for a couple of weeks after that where i i actually was like should i be doing this am i the right person to do this and i second guessed myself Conversations with my wife helped a lot just because you stop having to assign value to yourself based on outcome. But again, I I wouldn't have put it into those words at the time. I think what I did say to myself was, this is not the first time this has happened to to a doctor or a patient. And so Mm -hmm. what happened to those other doctors? Did they all give up? Because if we all give up, we're all, there's never going to be a doctor ever created. Mm -hmm. Right. Or ever uh, trained. So it changed my perspective on what I wanted to do. It sounds horrible, but it, it solidified the idea that I never want to be in that situation again. So I'm going to do every bit of training ever to make sure that I'm the most capable person at that moment. Wow. And so that's why I, I focused hard on critical care at the time. But like I, I remember thinking to myself, do I need to take some time away? Do I need to not go to work for the next week? Can I actually face the rest of the team and my colleagues? And, you know, when you're in training, you're always worried someone's going to tell you that you're not good enough. And so I went to work for the next couple of months thinking, I'm not sure if I'm good enough. And I wonder if today's the day they're going to find out. And uh, it hasn't gotten better. Wow. Like uh, I tell people that like the kind of grief that that strikes is something that doesn't get better you simply get better at managing it
0: mm-hmm.
1: so i can still have a conversation while talking about it yeah without <laughs> without having to pause too many times uh but but it is something that you know uh, i've told that story dozens of times literally mm-hmm. dozens of times and sometimes in some pretty public forums i was asked to speak at a wellness retreat for the residents and in, in uh, medicine and i know someone said can you tell us the time that you failed and I was with a panel of five people and I said well I have a short story and I'm sitting in front of a room of a couple hundred people and I kind of got teary-eyed and the people on the panel came and gave me a hug (laughs) you know like it (laughs) it was odd and then but residents came up and trainees came up afterwards and said you know that's exactly the feeling that I have when I go to work some days and I said good like it, it doesn't preclude you from being a doctor. It proves that you're a human being.
0: Yeah, and we and we need that human side of of doctors to remain. And I think it's just incredible, though, that the humanness you show and and how I think in society and what we're trying to do here, even in heroes in our midst, is is to make the human element of people a strength, not a weakness. And I think and and you've said. Atmosphere in the hospital has changed, and really, has training for for medical professionals has it changed? Our um, you know, residents, interns, students are they getting an opportunity to to hear some of this?
1: So it's interesting you say that. Like I, I'm take part in two or three different national organizations for resident training. Okay, and I can tell you that there has been a shift in the way that we train doctors over the past twenty years, probably thirty years, where focus on understanding the human aspects of medicine have have become more important without uh, sounding like an old man too much. You know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, if you wanted to get into medical school, you had to have the highest marks. And so it was the people who worked the hardest in schools, spent a lot of time with their books. They were successful when they applied to medicine. In the late 80s and 90s, there was a shift where they wanted well-rounded students. And that has continued on where people with arts degrees who apply to medicine, who may not have that same science background mm-hmm. they still have good marks but it's not that they read everything in biology that there ever was to read you know right. uh, and so they come through it. So so that's changed the flavor of the trainees that come through medicine on top of that society as a whole has moved towards like i, I think we're kind of a meritocracy where we reward people who have succeeded in whatever realm we yeah. assign value to so education is one sports public service all that stuff but What's happened in the past very 15, 20 years is that students have started, like the, the idea of shame-based learning has become inappropriate and rightfully so. Being yelled at by a teacher was kind of commonplace when I was a little kid. And now a teacher could would never yell at a student or throw chalk at them, you know, <laughs> you know, the kind of thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so as society has shifted, so has the education of medical trainees. And so we have a much more holistic approach of people are being trained I think to feel more human and to make sure they're in touch with that part mm-hmm. it, it's caused a shift in the way physicians are viewed because uh you know again you, you mentioned earlier that you said um, physicians are sometimes put on a pedestal and I'm like that might have been true in the 50s and 60s right where the town doc was kind of he was important right. he could sign your passport application right <laughs> like it, That's it was right. <laughs> Now, I don't think people feel that way about their doc. And their doc doesn't feel that way about their patients. They're kind of like, look, I put up my sign, I'm open at nine, I close at four, good luck after that, right? Like, and there's a little bit of that has seeped into the medical culture. So I think that part of the humanism that's kind of come back into medicine is also because people are a little bit more protective of their time. Mm -hmm. It's a job. It's not a calling, right? Like the Mm -hmm. priesthood is still a calling, uh medicine less of a calling more of a pretty flexible job that you can do a lot of cool things and you can travel you know like yeah it's, exactly. it's changed the uh flavor.
0: What an interesting change too. And what an interesting profession. And since we're talking about humans, it's, it strikes me that many of our jobs, I mean, there are lots of jobs that involve other human beings, but there are lots of jobs that don't, but your job in the medical profession is always with people in some of the most intense situations and, and not just your patients, but those families. And I'm, I am thinking that you, you, you must have so many stories about sort of relating to those that are the families of the actual work that you're doing. And what an extra layer of humanness that has to go into that. I mean, Maybe speak to that a little bit and how you handle that. I mean, there's tons of emotion in those that are watching a loved one go through something you're trying to help them with.
1: Totally agree. And when I talk to other trainees and docs about it, we talk about the idea that like, no one wants to be in the hospital, right? No patient wants to be there. No family wants to be there. And truth be told, the docs and nurses don't want to be there either, because it's it's a shitty place to work. Yeah. <laughs> like, people are near the end of their life, uh, or they've come in not because they want to, because they have to. Mm-hmm. And so I, I kind of do a mental check every time I'm going to go talk to a family, and I tell myself, this is the worst day of their life. Right. I am meeting them when they are stressed. So what they're about to say is not a reflection on me as a human being. It's a reflection on the fact that they're in, in stress. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the roles that I uh, am in right now is that I'm a physician with the Transplant Manitoba's Gift of Life program, so organ donation. Uh-huh. So I get to be involved in conversations with families where some a loved one is dying and do they want to donate their organs or not?
0: Yeah.
1: And that's a very different type of conversation because the patient has been determined that they are going to pass away. Now it's a question of how do we honor their wishes and changing the context of the conversation to, we're not offering treatments. Now we're saying what benefit can this person's life give others? And some families are just, it's overwhelming to get the honor to work with them because they they come and they say stuff like we're losing our loved ones, but this, per- he can help, he or she can help 15 people if he donates. And we'd like to do that. And then, you you know like I I, I'm always amazed by those families that they are that focused on the care for their loved one that they want to make sure that they honor their wishes Mm -hmm. so I, I I think that the best way of putting it is that like families coming into the hospital just as much as patients are in distress and the way that we talk to them like colleagues, humans, people in the same community, whether we come from the same community or not, If we can't do that. We're not gonna be able to care for them.
0: Do you ever worry, Faisal? You've shared emotion with us here. Do you ever ever worry? I mean, you know, different situations in life, you know, whatever it might be, you know, you say, I have to hold it together. I have to hold it together. You know, if I give too much of myself for my emotion, I'm gonna let too much go. I love that you're willing to be emotional. Do you think there's a longer span for you in this profession because you're willing to let some of it go or less because does it get too hard?
1: So I think that every person deals with their emotions differently for me. Like I said, I can have a conversation, be very emotional about something and still talk through it. Mm -hmm. I don't think everyone can do that, but I also don't, I know colleagues who never get a teary eye. doesn't matter what happens. Right. and, and, they, their approach to patients is not better or worse. It's just their approach. It's just different, right? So yeah. I know that like, we get to make that decision for ourselves. How much are we willing to emote? There's days when I need to excuse myself for a minute, just <laughs> recompose. And, and I, I tell families, and part of the honesty that I bring when I have a discussion with the family is the fact that I might get a little emotional. I might get a tear drop down my face and, I, and I'm okay with that. But that comes from having done this for a while. When I was a trainee, it was less acceptable. Again, you don't know what other people are thinking, but I perceived it that my mentors would look down on me because I was doing them. Having now become a little bit more satisfied or more comfortable with who I am and how I manage this. I recognize now that there are some mentors of mine that probably would have been like a little uncomfortable with it, whereas others would have been totally accepting of it. And I try and make sure that the trainees that I work with know that there's nothing wrong with feeling the emotions. And in fact, the line that I use frequently is like, if you don't go home from work once in a while, feeling horrible about your day, you don't care enough and you shouldn't come back to work, right? Like this is horrible what we get to see. And what we get to take part in not because we did it but because you know young families struck and down by cancer young people uh with diseases that just you never saw coming yesterday you were fine today you're not like the grief that we get to see in the hospital is intense and if we don't feel a bit of it how do we Um, empathize with our patients, have a conversation that's honest with our patients. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, I would be remiss if I didn't ask how COVID has affected your life. It's affected all of us. You and I are chatting by Zoom. We can't be together in the same room at the moment. But many of us, um, we hear about Uh, how important it is that um, we we do our part so that our medical system doesn't get overtaxed. But really, you guys have been already. And the reality of COVID, the effect, you know, on your journey in this last little while, how has COVID affected our medical professionals and and you personally?
1: So it was interesting. I had to go get a haircut a couple of days ago when they finally opened up. And (laughs) I remember going in and the hairstylist was talking to me and she's like, it's so weird. I get to talk to people again and I was like it's so funny because I haven't had that experience because I go to work every day and it's like a normal day it's a busy day but it's like a normal day so the social aspects of of work have kept me sane because Mm -hmm. I still get to see people and do stuff now the the effect COVID's had on our system is horrific Mm -hmm. Um, and horrific people are dying Uh, that happens Uh, there's things we can do sometimes there's not the adjustment to visiting rules where I have had end of life conversations with people by zoom or by phone call where I'm talking to someone and their spouse is dying beside me and they're not allowed to come visit because they tested positive for COVID and there's nothing more that we can offer. So I'm holding their hand while they pass. Our nurses are the last people, those people will see alive. You know, I find that horrifying yeah. that we've done this to people. You probably have heard about the visitor restrictions at funerals, you know, like yeah. that is a, funerals like humanity has always used that as a time to gather and console. Mm-hmm. And we can't do that. I can tell you also that that's just the interaction between the patients and their families and us amongst the healthcare team members. There is a horrible amount of anxiety about am I going to take this home today? Am I going to affect my mother, my grandmother, my kids? We've taken to doing things like a couple of uh, different departments have gotten hotel rooms where at the end of your shift, you can go to the hotel, shower, change into street clothes and leave the hospital without having to worry about taking something home. You know, uh, people have reduced how much they visit their family. I might be infectious because of what happened at work today. So I'm not going to go see my mother-in-law, my mother, my parents, my, you know, my kids, my uncle, my aunt. So that leads to an incredible amount of stress. So at work, part of my role also is that I'm a manager of one of the intensive care units. So uh, one of the medical managers. So what that means is that, you know, I kind of know all the nurses and I know who their families are. And I come by and i just say, Hey, how are things going today? And I, Unfortunately, sometimes people tell you the truth rather than just, they're fine. And that opens up doors where you have to, where you, you you know, you open the door, you have to walk through it now. So I get to sit and I get to talk to people at three in the morning about how bad they feel every day coming to work and, and going home. So the caregiver burnout that's happening in the hospital is one aspect of this that I think we've got, if not years, maybe decades worth of difficulties coming Mm. for how much this is gonna hurt our system, not just healthcare, but humanity and like a society in general. And I worry about like with the new variants that people are talking about, how much longer are people gonna be tolerant of the restrictions and the, the needs?
0: We hear how important it is that we you know, adhere to these restrictions and all of that. And But from your perspective, I mean, we hear what effect it's having. And, you know, I, I guess a, a small price to pay for those of us who can keep our distance and stay home and those kind of things. And you hear the messages, but we don't always hear from someone like you who's, you know, behind <laughs> no. enemy lines there. So it becomes real. So thanks for sharing that. Um, uh, Something came to mind. And, you know, when I think about COVID and I guess none of us knowing, no matter what training we have, this is catching us all and people we're learning all of our medical people where you guys are learning as we go as well. And, you know, 10 years, you look back and we get together again and, you know, maybe the, my podcast is still going and you're still being a doctor. And we look back at COVID as a memory what do you hope your story will read, like how you handled that or how you and your team handled that? How, how do you hope you look back at COVID? I mean, this is for, for sure a question you don't really know the answer to, but what, what do you hope?
1: My, my hope is that we as a society, and I'm talking about Manitobans in general, mm-hmm. uh, but also Canadians and whatever group you uh, ascribe to, I hope that we look back and say that we did our best. There's, there's only so much that you can control. Uh, We can't control people who, uh, or sorry, we can't control the spread of a virus that we can't, that has some people who are asymptomatic, who happen to have it and they share it with someone innocently, but unfortunately spread it. Mm -hmm. I think that those kind of things, we can assign a little bit of responsibility to the virus. I just don't want us to start assigning a responsibility for the spread of the virus to silly things where Mm -hmm. People have done things. like broken some of the rules, changed the rules, decide, you know, whether it's medical science has said, oh, it's okay to wear this type of mask and tomorrow it's, no, that's not good enough. You know, knowledge changes over time. So I understand how that is going to happen, but I don't want us to have like, you know, dueling advice that leads us to 10 years from now, looking back and saying, what a horrible thing we did because we thought we were so smart, right? It would better, better be, A little cautious. Um, I worry about the secondary implications. Like we, 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 everyone's talking about the number of people who are dying every day from COVID, but the real scary number is actually the deaths above the average. Mm -hmm. You know, the uh, non-attributed deaths—people who don't go to a hospital with their chest pain because Mm -hmm. they're worried about covid but really they're having a big heart attack and that's going to lead them to die Mm -hmm. you know and so we worry about that kind of stuff more and so i i think my my hope is 10 years from now we look back and we say we did the right thing my fear though is that 10 years from now we look back and say we were so anxious about the tip of the iceberg but there were so many social ills other diseases that were ignored because we were so focused on one problem.
0: Right. Well, you know, Faisal, I just think we owe such a great bunch of thank you to those of you who are doing what you can do every day. You're right. You're trying to do your very best. And you learned that back in your training, right? That, you know, you do your best, you take your steps and that's what you have to rely on. I think we can all hold on to that in our lives with whatever we're trying to accomplish and whatever we're trying to be and who we're trying to be and how we're trying to be. Thank you so much for sharing your story, for sharing your humanness. And there there is such strength in you as you carry on through the difficulties i just find that incredibly inspiring and so uh, before we finish i have some rapid fire questions to ask you which we are enjoying it's been really fun because we started this podcast project uh in the summer of 2020 when the olympics and all of that and it had an athlete focus but boy we're finding heroes in so many walks of life and and i'm I'm curious to hear what you all have to say so what is your favorite sound
1: this is so geeky So uh, one of the favorite sounds I have is the sound uh, from an oxygen saturation monitor in the hospital, because if it's the right sound and the right pitch, I know that the patient's okay. And it's it's one of those things that like, as an anesthesiologist, I hear it everywhere. I go, I can walk through a hospital and I'll be like, oh, that person's okay.
0: (laughs) That makes sense coming from you. Love it. What does being unapologetically human mean to you and why is it important?
1: what it means to me is that I don't mind showing my emotions like we talked about. I don't mind being uh, seen of as either smart, dumb, uh, you know, intelligent, stupid. I I just want to be me and I want to provide whatever I can provide. So that's, that's my version of unapologetically human. And it's important because I think that, having two kids who are teenage age who are learning who they are as human beings right now. I remember that stage and I hated it. So I love the fact that I am past that stage now, but I hope that people get there, you know, just to have the comments we had earlier, like I I'm comfortable saying how I feel and what happened because I've been through that already, so yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, of all that you've experienced, you have to have uh, you know a favorite crazy story or something funny that's happened. And as serious as your life often seems to be, uh, there's a lot of hilarious things that happen. So, uh, do you have a story for us?
1: The most funny story I can tell you that's not too inappropriate is that in the hospital, one of the most interesting things is that people are not human. Sometimes and what I mean to say is that like, they're stressed out, they do crazy stuff that they don't intend, they don't mean to uh, a group of colleagues and I have a running text group where we send weird stuff that we've seen in the hospital. And literally, in the past year, there has been a significant increase to found food in the hospital, you're walking around like, why is there a burger sitting on the floor? <laughs> like, And so it, it, it's very childish, right? But we're like, the goal of the game is to who can find a whole meal in a day. <laughs> and so we will routinely like, we'll walk around and be like, Oh my God, there's like half a milkshake. And someone will take a picture of it, like literally spilled on the floor be like, look what I found. Anyone want to come join me for lunch? Right? <laughs> like, so we, we try and find humor in those silly things. That's the kind of thing that we find is safe. It also is a little bit, it's intriguing because sometimes like, you know, like literally I I think someone found like a half-eaten grilled cheese sandwich and and there was was like three pieces of sushi on top of it. And we're just like, who's eating sushi on a grilled cheese sandwich? That's probably a funny story that's safe.
0: Faisal, what does hope mean to you? Uh,
1: Hope means change. When people are hoping for something better, different, whatever, really what they're hoping for is that they, something to change in their life Mm. that they don't. So you know, I hope to do this. Well, it's like, I hope there's a change that allows me to do that.
0: Yeah, for sure. What is your biggest takeaway from the great pause?
1: The amount of time we get to spend with family and loved ones. Mm -hmm. And I feel for the people who are isolated from their, you know, extended family. But if you have even one or two close people, Mm -hmm. that time, like I, the thing that I've learned the most is that I love being at home. Before everyone's, you're always so busy. You've got somewhere to go, something to do, some place to be. I love having nothing to do at home, having family there with me.
0: Yeah. Who is the bravest leader you know? Why is that? And what elements of humanness did they display and allow others to display?
1: So the bravest leader I know was actually the guy who got me involved in the research with Cal. He has since passed away. His name was Dean Bell dean was not a traditional leader he was a he was an educator as well as did a little bit of management stuff but what he brought in terms of like my life career and leadership was that he he brought individualized um, care so he didn't have when, when he came to talk to you he talked to you like you were you not this is the talk i gave everybody who's like you it's like these are the issues that you need to find. So, or you need to describe because I noticed you do this, 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 and this. So he was blunt. He was a very blunt instrument that that (laughs) would sometimes bludgeon you, at least your emotions, but it was always from a position of, uh, of caring. Mm -hmm. So I think he was probably one of the bravest people I know because of that. Awesome.
0: What is an example of the best in humanity that you have seen during this time?
1: I cannot tell you how much we appreciate the volunteers who've come in to help families when near uh the end of life.
0: We've mm-hmm.
1: had a exceptional group of uh volunteers who come and like you know, my comment earlier about standing there and holding someone's hand as they die. Yeah. We have groups of people who said this is something that we can help with. Wow. And they, you know, we were fortunate enough to get uh some donations to get iPads together for the intensive care units and we're letting families and friends talk. And we don't have the time to show people who've never had an iPad before how to use it. But these mm-hmm. volunteers come in, get on the phone, talk to grandma and grandpa, walk them through how to do a Zoom call, and then get them to see their loved one in the hospital. And so it, it sounds horrible because as a kid we were always taught spend as little time as possible in front of a screen. But now <laughs> but now getting people to actually interact with people that they couldn't see. We have uh, these uh, volunteers are putting themselves at risk, knowing that they're working in places where there's quite a bit of COVID and they might get infected and they're trained in how to make sure they take care of themselves, just like all of us but they're still volunteering to do this.
0: That's incredible. That's a great example. And finally, who are two or three people who influenced you and how did they impact your life?
1: So we've talked about Cal, but Cal changed the way that uh, I see who I am and how I can help people. Wow. His uh, perspective or his opinion on how people can be better has shown me how to be better myself. And I appreciate that. Dean Bell, again, was a mentor of mine that I... uh, I appreciated his blunt input into my, my appearance. And then my kids. My kids remind me that uh, when I'm old, they remind me that every day. But they remind me what it's like to not be sure of yourself and to be in situations where you're stressed. As adults, we get to pick what we do with our time. And we will put ourselves in positions of comfort. We will not, we'll try not to stress that. Whereas kids don't have that. And so my daughter's uh, in first year university. And so the discussions I get to have with her are phenomenal because her opinion of what's happening in the world and how she wants to handle herself in this is a lesson to me. And I, I, probably for the past 10 years or so, I've been telling people at work that one day when I grow up, I want to be like my daughter because she's like and my son has a different take on the world but my daughter was one of those people who I was always impressed by how well she handled difficulties so what I learned from her was that that, you know grace even if you're not um, uh, successful so she's taught me that well and then my son has taught me like it is amazing how resilient we can be when bad things are happening you know, I think my kids influence me, which is just sounds hokey parenting, but, but, but it is definitely like, it's not that they've shown me patience or any of that stuff that we say about kids, but you no, know, they've shown me how to be good people. And I, I'm pretty sure that it's because of my wife, not because of <laughs>
0: Well, Dr. Faisal Siddiqui, I hope I said that right. What a pleasure. You've given us a perspective that we just don't have on our own, and that's a gift to us. So thank you. Thank you for walking amongst us, for being here where we are, and for sharing your time with us. We really appreciate it.
1: My pleasure. Thanks very much, Michelle.
0: Yes, you have just met another hero in our midst. And if you'd like to hear more, you can, anywhere you listen to podcasts, really. And if you want to dig deeper, you can find all of the episodes and see what our heroes team has taken from this conversation in the resources section at heroesinourmidst.ca. And we're not done with the medical field just yet. Dr. Chow Pham is our next guest. Her story begins in Vietnam when, at just five years old, her parents put her on a boat, all alone, and it ends in Manitoba as an emergency room doctor and University of Manitoba professor. An incredible story. It drops Monday, June 7th, and it'll be worth the wait. Thanks for listening.